Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ninth Story Studios. Giving story a voice. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org to discover more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. You're listening to the Wicked Library. <laughs> What's that guy doing over here? He's been standing at that shelf for like 20 minutes. He looks frantic. He's going to have a heart attack or something. Hmm. He has been there quite a long time, hasn't he? Why don't you take your cigarette break, Ronnie? I'll see what I can do to lower his blood pressure. Cool. Thanks, Mr. Pyre. The red one. Damn it. The one with the cross on it? I can't pick the wrong one. If only I knew. Good evening. Huh? Oh. Thank you for shopping at Mega Huge. I see you're enjoying our extensive wine collection. I didn't hear you come up behind me. Yes. I'm very light on my feet. How can I help you? I'm trying to figure out which wine to get. I finally got up the courage to ask the girl from accounting over for dinner, and I need to make sure I get the right wine. Hmm. Yes. Nothing beats drinking the perfect red for dinner. I mean, with dinner. I just can't decide. There's so many here. I don't know anything about wine. It's really intimidating. Yes. Yes, it can be. Look at all the bottles. So many of them. Almost too many to count. See how the light dances on the surface of the bottles. And so many labels. All the words. So many letters. Yes. Bottles. Lights, letters, so many, so many. It's enough to make you a little dizzy, isn't it? Yes, I feel strange. Mm. Yes, it's entrancing, mesmerizing. It makes you forget everything and relax. Yes, relax. Excellent. Delicious. Well now, it sounds like poor Claude ended up all dried up. 
lad had no problem getting what he wanted to drink to come right to him and had no problem making his selection. Wouldn't you rather be like Vlad? Of course you would. Trying to figure out which wine you'll like can really suck the life out of you. <laughs> if only Claude had used Wink, he wouldn't have had such a draining evening. Wink makes it easy to discover great wine, and you don't even have to leave your crypt. You just answer some questions about things like how you take your coffee and if you like blueberries, and their team of mystical wine experts use their powers to see into the future and send you wine you'll love, shipped right to your door. Finding a great wine doesn't have to be terrifying. Don't be a clod, kiddies. Discover great wine today. Go to trywink.com slash wicked library and you'll get $20 off your first shipment. That's T-R-Y-W-I-N-C dot com slash wicked library for $20 off. Trywink.com slash wicked library. Warning. If you haven't figured out that the Wicked Library has strong themes of an adult, sometimes violent and decidedly scary nature, then by all means, keep listening. Go on, it's just that you're not going to complain about it. Oh, you can try, but you'll be scoffed at and ridiculed mercilessly by the host, the narrators, the producers, and you could bet your dangling participle me. Go ahead, try it. You're not going to like it one little bit, but our millions of listeners will eat it up. <laughs> and that's not hyperbole, kiddies. So there's your warning. Enjoy the show, kiddies. <laughs> Welcome to episode number 807 of the Wicked Library. Today's episode features a story by the very talented Gwendolyn Keist, told by the incomparable Jessica McAvoy, with a tiny little bit of help from yours truly. Hello, kiddies! You know who I am by now. Sit down and relax while you can. Your librarian has taken such good care of you for seven seasons. I see no need to lighten up for season eight. Hold on to your breath, kiddies. It might just be your last. Once again, it's story time at the Wicked Library. <laughs> A Certain Kind of Spark by Gwendolyn Keist Even with my eyes closed, I can see Callista glow. So bright she's almost blinding, every pore of her body trilling like a morning dove in spring. Our parents call it a spark. It's what makes your big sister special, they say. I'm only three years old, 
but I already know I have no spark. When I look at my reflection in mud puddles, all I see are shadows. Earthworms peek out of the ground. If I concentrate, I can make them dance. Callista doesn't care. In the June sun, she etches colorful hieroglyphics on the broken sidewalk using fat sticks of chalk. She motions to her finished hopscotch pattern. Let's see how long you can go without stopping. A half hour back and forth in the noonday sun, I peer up at her, smaller than I was at the start. Am I done now? Callista smiles. Not yet. I tremble. She scares me when she gets like this. I don't know what she'll do. I don't know what the spark will make her do. Breathless, I call to our parents. They're inside, buried in the rooms they pattern after Callista's latest whim. Jungle prints, barnyard animals, pink galore. The decor changes monthly. After a long moment, they appear on the porch. Please let me stop, I say, but they just keep smiling at my sister. Callista steps forward, her skin glistening. Keep going. I back away, dusty footprints in my wake. No. Though I lunge to escape her, Callista's faster than I am. She shoves me to the concrete, and my head splits open as if the goddess Athena herself demands an escape route. At the emergency room... The attending doctor proffers my sister a lemon lollipop. I ask for one too, but all I get are 18 stitches and grounded for a week. Your sister invited you to play, our parents say, condemning me to bed early. And you didn't play nice. Neither did she, I whisper to the darkness. The only one in the house that listens. At dawn, Callista creeps into my bedroom. She takes her time, moving in elegant steps over my cache of hand-me-down toys, like the specter of a ballerina. Anastasia? It's the first time I remember anyone calling my name. Leave me alone, I say. You're not my sister anymore. She climbs into my bed and tugs the blanket over us. I didn't mean to hurt you. I sniffle and pull her closer. I can't stay mad, even when I want to, even when she deserves it. Good night, Anastasia. Good night, Callista. She's asleep in a minute. But I can't rest. Not with her next to me. A light flutters beneath her eyelids as she dreams her perfect dreams. I try not to stare, but I stare anyhow. The glow beneath her skin recedes, and tiny gray crevices open on her arms and face. My sister is a shattered statue, 
and I can see inside her. See inside to something that beckons me, yet always glides just out of reach. Because she can't choose, our parents buy Callista two gowns for prom, each worth more than some countries' gross national product. A freshman to her senior, I'm beautified in nothing except my tangled hair and second-hand wardrobe. I don't go to prom, and I don't care either. Only a fool needs custom couture, I say, though no one except the darkness listens. Fool or not, on the evening of the starry night prom, Callista calls me into her bedroom. From the curtains to the carpet, the latest theme is polka dots, but it won't last. My bedroom, one that's a spare closet compared to hers, overflows with whatever she discards. A mishmash of zebra prints and thankfully forgotten boy bands. Help me pick a dress, she says, and hands me a quarter. Heads for the strapless charcoal number, and tails for the yellow one with the flower. I bury the quarter inside my fist scrutinizing the satin and lace dangling in the closet. Both are ugly, I say, especially the yellow. Her heart-shaped face floats toward me like a disembodied visage in a charlatan's act. Didn't ask your opinion. Her breath is warm honey against my ear. Just flip the coin. I toss the silver into the air and walk away before it lands. An hour later, her blonde hair arrayed in pin curls, she waltzes out the door with a tacky pink flower at her waist. In the front yard, our parents take pictures to commemorate the occasion. Her gaggle of friends surrounds her. Mary and Allison and Sarah Jean all with their generic smiling faces and trite compliments. Gorgeous as always, they say, and Callista feigns a blush. Adorned in gowns and glitter, they line up next to their bows and too tight tuxes. I struggle to pick out Brandon, my sister's date, from the rest. He's conspicuous only when he slips a bright carnation around her wrist. Yellow's your color, he says. Scoffing, I gaze at her. Photo after photo, she flashes dimples, her long arms draped across the snarl of shoulders. Though they fix their posture and pretend to listen to their dates, her friends all sneak glances at Callista. None of them smolder like her. The spark is there. I can see it. They can too. Our parents beckon me. Get a few pictures with your sister, they say. The flash is blinding us. I stand next to her in my jeans and torn t-shirt. A valence of hair draped over my forehead to obscure the scars she long ago gave me. Callista pulls me closer. Don't be jealous about the dresses. I'm not, 
I jerk away. I don't care about anything that's yours. She laughs. <laughs> Liar. Jaw set, I stare into her, right through the yellow fabric and the fake flower at her waist and the real flower on her wrist. The murmurs of her friends fall away, and the narrow cracks open again on her face and arms. This time, a line bisects her, and she starts to split right down the center. My lips part, and I drift forward as my body forms cracks of its own. I'm both sinking and flying, and I don't know which I prefer. Anastasia? Her voice jars me back to the sidewalk. I glance at my skin, then at hers. No fractures. She examines me. What were you thinking just now? I retreat behind the camera. Nothing. The other girls advance toward my sister. Your corsage, one of them says. Callista points to another girl. Yours is the same. The group surges together, our parents joining them, while the boys in their rented suits circle like black ants around a body. Only I stay beyond the fray. I already know what they see. All the corsages have withered to ash. My sister's next dress remains in queue for years, but it's coming, the bouquet and lace as unstoppable as the sun. At 22, she declares she's ready, or maybe the spark declares it for her. In the bridal boutique, our parents tug at cap sleeves and invisible zippers. You'll be beautiful in white, they say. And Brandon will love you in anything. Brandon, a cipher of a man. He hasn't proposed yet, but that step's no more than a formality. The spark gets what the spark wants. Callista holds a silver dress up to me. This might look nice on you. In my stained leggings... I inch away from the formal wear as if one acid touch will melt my skin. And why would I wear that? For the ceremony. She tilts her head. You'll be my maid of honor, right? Our parents pinch my arm. Don't you dare disappoint her. Biting down, I gape at my sister. Between storefront mannequins and satin-burdened racks, her body gleams. The sinking, soaring, dizzy feeling returns, and I'm ready this time. Ready to snap her into pieces and find out if there's a candy-coated center inside that sweet veneer. Anastasia? Callista's bright gaze counters my own. Please? For the rest of the afternoon, I wriggle into beaded silk and poofy taffeta. Doesn't suit you, she says, condemning me back to the dressing room each time. 
But even the other brides shopping for their own nuptials coo and marvel over my sister. With the help of a smiley sales associate, Callista dons each dress twice. The most expensive is the winner. Our parents put down a $5,000 deposit. We're only a ring away. That night, Brandon joins us for dinner. Despite regular Sunday suppers and half a decade of maudlin holidays, he never remembers my name. We traverse the same world without acknowledging the other, as though we're ghosts of different eras passing through a shared wall. I need to make a confession. Callista flashes dimples, and the room stops. Brandon smiles at her. Okay. We bought a dress. Did you? He asks, the smile holding steady. And the wedding party's picked out. She's breathless and blushing from within. I have to close my eyes and turn away to keep her skin from splitting apart. Mary and Allison are my bridesmaids, she says. And Sarah Jean will be the maid of honor. My eyes snap open. I'm suddenly breathless, too. So she said yes? Our parents clap their hands. We always liked Sarah Jean. I exhale, my stomach turning inside out. I thought, Sarah Jean is so excited, my sister says. We all are. It'll be an amazing day. Sounds like it. Brandon kisses her forehead. I'm glad I'm picking up the ring tomorrow. The table practically levitates to the ceiling as everyone but me titters and squeals. I excuse myself, my chair toppling over behind me. Hours later, after dessert and coffee and card games, my family bids farewell to the future son and the house hesitates awaiting my sister's next command. I wait, too. Footsteps sneak up the stairs. Anastasia? Callista knocks, but opens the door before I answer. In my bedroom that's half the size of hers, I pretend to study the wall. You're mad, aren't you? She sighs. You're not bridesmaid material anyhow. I figured Sarah Jean was your way out. Maybe I didn't want a way out. I move toward her. Maybe I wanted you to share something. Share something? Callista leans against the doorway. I've shared everything. I glare into her. Only when you're through with it. She smiles. Why else would I give it to you? (laughs) Giggling, she turns, but I grab her arm. My head spins, and for an instant, I'm back on that summer sidewalk, fading in the heat and the hopscotch game. Surrounding me like a circle of fire, I hear my sister's voice. And my voice... 
Then the two sounds meld into one. This time, I focus on her, and I don't let go. Her body breaks apart like an eggshell. My skin mirrors hers, and I splinter down the middle. The walls around us recede, leaving nothing but two cracked, open torsos. My sister and I have no insides. No intestines or lungs or hearts. Just what's left when you strip away everything else. She's blinding, a radiant daisy white. I'm the reverse, an onyx tar, a cavern into nothingness. Our bodies speak without words, but I understand anyway. Callista's born first. Passing through our parents, she seizes what's hers and takes something more. She steals the light that should have been mine. She cradles it inside of her. She keeps it for herself. Before I can stop myself, I reach inside her and grasp the glow. It's warm and getting warmer, like moving your hand toward a flame. There's no reason I should be able to take it. It's been within her for so long it belongs to her, like a borrowed sweater she forgot to give back. But the heavy darkness in me, the place where my own light should be, is a whirlpool that swallows everything around it. I don't even want the whole light. Half would be enough, but a spark's either there or not there. No in-between. It happens all at once. Then the walls return, and we're standing inside my bedroom as though nothing's changed. But something has changed, and we both know it. Callista clutches her chest and moans softly. What did you do? I smile. Nothing, I say. My voice, the honeyed one now. As promised, Brandon proposes the next day. My parents cry and congratulate us. They don't ask why he wants to marry the daughter whose name he's never spoken. The spark is happy, and that's enough. I say yes, because I'm curious where the whole thing will go. At the bridal boutique, the sales associate the same one who helped my sister, smiles at me. Back for your wedding dress already? She doesn't notice Callista standing by my side. No one notices her but me. I squirm. It's not my... Yes, we are, my parents say. Before they pay, they insist I try on the gown again. I explain I've never worn it, not once, and it isn't even my size, but they won't listen. Under a fluorescent bulb, the lace slides over my body. It needs no alteration. It was made for me, or at least, it was made for what lives inside me now. That night, Callista moves me into the master bedroom with her. Sisters should share she says without inflection. 
With the wedding gown in my new closet, I contemplate how to change the decor in the room. The current theme is nautical, but not for long now that I can choose. Callista slithers next to me. We could share something else, she says. Like maybe I could be your maid of honor. I shiver, though there's no draft. Not unless you want to disappoint Sarah Jean. My sister hesitates. Since when are you two friends? We're not, I say. But when she heard about the engagement, she called and begged to be my maid of honor. And you said yes? The hollow frost in her voice makes me shiver again. No one else asked. That's a shame, she whispers. Sisters should share everything. But she wants to share more than a wedding day. Whenever Brandon and I go to the movies or out to dinner, she trails us. In back rows and corner booths, she's there, watching me live the life that should be hers. I don't have to tell her where we'll be. She can find us any place. Her tether to the spark never goes slack. I ask Brandon to take me on a drive. A long drive where Callista can't follow. Do you love me? I ask him, inspecting the rear view for signs of my sister. He peers at the serpentine road ahead of us. Of course. Why? I don't know why. He says. I've just loved you forever. It's been two weeks, but I'm in no mind to correct him. Why did you love Callista? He frowns. Did I? You took her to prom. I thought I took you to prom, he says. There are pictures of you with Callista. My chest compresses, and I feel like I'm choking. She wore a yellow dress with this hideous little flower on it. And the corsage you bought her wilted. All the corsages wilted. Brandon smirks in a way I like more than I want to. You know an awful lot about my prom, he says. You sure you weren't my date? I stifle a sob. It wasn't me. My sister appears at the side of the road, an ethereal hitchhiker, but Brandon doesn't recognize her. We plow forward into the night as I bury my head in my hands. I can't hold on to both. A light where it doesn't belong and a cavern that will never be filled. Together, they're overflowing inside me. The darkness is heavier, the more potent of the two. It sinks like a rusted anchor and threatens to take the spark with it. Moonlight peeks into our bedroom, illuminating Callista's blank face. We have no curtains. I took the old nautical ones down, wadded them up in the corner, but there's nothing to replace them. I never could decide what I wanted. I wish you could understand, I say to her. 
Oh, I do understand, she says. I understand how empty you've been. I close my eyes and turn toward the wall. I'm not empty. Though I can't see her, I know what she's doing. A predator lying in wait. My sister studies me. The moment she can retrieve what's hers is coming. She can feel it. So can I. I awake to two shapes, both mine and hers, suspended over me. As my eyes adjust to the shadows, I see it's only Callista. That vacant voice fills the room. Just give me what's mine. I exhale a ragged breath. All you have to do is share, she says. Sisters should share everything. Her soft hands wrap around my neck. I fumble within myself, searching for what I stole. But everything's jumbled, and our bodies won't crack open like before. Please... I say as my throat collapses and the words dissolve. I focus on her face. It splits apart, slower than before. So slow I'm sure she'll crush me first. With the world fading, she and I cleave in two. I lasso her light and shove it toward her. But she won't take it. She doesn't recognize it. I've desecrated it too much. A gray veil lowers around me. I look for an exit, a rip in the gloom inside me, but nothing's clear, and the dizziness is stronger than I am. I try a final time to return what's hers. I grab what's mine instead. Maybe I do it on purpose, or maybe I can't tell one from the other anymore. The darkness flows out of me, and I see it drift behind her eyes. Because it belongs to me, I can feel it take root inside her. It's like a cancer that metastasizes instantly. Unlike the spark she stole at birth, the gloom was mine alone. No one else can endure it like I have. She releases her hands from my neck her body lingering over me as if weightless. Then she wilts like a golden leaf tumbling from a blazing autumn tree. My sister's gone before she hits the floor. Her funeral is a quick little affair, the entry-level option since my parents have no money to spare so soon before my wedding. I wear her runner-up prom dress to the burial. The winner is already in the coffin. That fake flower at her waist joins other flowers. A single bouquet that I bought for her. The petals wilt before evening. I stand with figures in black, and we mourn in the spring. Then I stand alone. The trees change, but I have not. And neither has Callista. She waits. The darkness that belongs to me incubates her body. They check her pulse before they inter her with grass and pine. But that doesn't matter. She's not dead 
I say. Brandon touches a hand to my bare shoulder. Of course she's dead, Anastasia. It's the first time he says my name. Until then, I'm not sure he knows it. The lights in the world dim, and the groundskeeper hangs at the gate that closes at sundown. Brandon and I murmur our goodbyes to Callista. I'm here for you, he says, and I think he's speaking to her until I notice him watching me. Anything you need. But I'm not the only one who needs solace. Stay with me, I say, and he obliges. I comfort him. Again and again I comfort him, until my belly swells and I birth a spark of my own. A spark that's more my sister than me. She's beautiful, everyone says. She's beautiful enough, I say. Baby bottles and bassinets. Brandon and I settle into our white picket routine, into the life that should be hers. It's custom built for Callista. I'm a stranger, and all I want is to trade in the husband and child like an ill-fitting suit. It wouldn't change much. She's still with me, in my place at the dinner table, in my chair at parent-teacher meetings, in my half of a bed that's never quite warmed up. Had I not kept it alive, The spark would have died with her, but I did keep it. Every day I nurse it, and now it's strong. Strong enough to match the darkness. Strong enough to return to its rightful place. I visit her grave and beg her to come home. But the images in my mind aren't enough. I need something else to bind me to her. In the bedroom we once shared, where our childhoods have gone to die, yellowed pictures of me and Callista topple out of a photo album as if they've been expecting me. In one, she's six and I'm three, and we stand on that broken sidewalk. The hopscotch patterns faded, but a hazy outline remains. In the other, it's the same sidewalk but we're older. She poses in the dress she's still wearing, and I slump in my jeans. Almost forgotten moments. That's all I have left of Callista. I shove us in my pocket. That night, after my family sleeps, I grip the crumbling paper between my fingers. Take it, I whisper, and my sister... Both the one in the photograph and the one in the soil agrees. The tiny faded shapes in my hand change. Cracks appear across her body. The same cracks appear across mine. The spark flows out of me. It's awkward and jarring, yet a relief. One that trickles through me, slowly like chlorine exiting your ear after a day at the pool. I think I'll feel empty without it. I don't. My darkness boomerangs back, and at last, I'm whole.
but it comes back different. Callista is all over it. I taste the acrid earth and the dust and the loss. She savors the remnants of my life, too. Where she's been is more exciting. I awake in the morning to a day that's new in ways I've never known. I put a kettle on the stove. There's been an entire night for Callista to claw through the dirt. She's free. I can feel it. And she'll find me. The searing light will guide her back to me. My daughter bounds to the table, hungry as usual. What's for breakfast? She chirps, and I muss her hair. My sister's hair. Brandon follows behind. He turns to me, then hesitates. Did you change something? He searches my face. Is it a new outfit? Same dress I've had since high school. Another of Callista's hand-me-downs. He shrugs and kisses my cheek. You're gorgeous either way, he says, and means it. For the first time, I wonder if the years have earned me my life. Perhaps after all the practice, it's real now. My sister will help parse out the truth. She's in the garden, trampling the flowers. The real flowers. The kettle screams. My daughter peers through the window. Mom? She says, the timber of her voice warbling like a sick songbird. Mom, something's out there. Something that finally understands. The tinge of my life all over her. My sister and I are not so different anymore. Oh, God. Brandon grabs our daughter. Go upstairs. Now. Tears already staining her face. She obeys. My husband takes hold of my shoulders, but I wave him off like a tourist pestered by a mosquito. The spark and earth and fake flower waver at the threshold. Brandon collapses in the corner, mouthing a prayer or a curse or an amalgam of both. He won't answer the door. She opens it herself. Good morning, Anastasia. Good morning, Callista. I pour her a cup of tea. She adds more honey. Well, kiddies, now it's time for another quick tale. This one deals with a powerful hunger burning deep inside. A hunger so intense and so overpowering that when unstopped, it can transform a man into a beast. Let's find out what happens when Henry spends all his time in the basement, working on his inventions, and ignores the hunger deep inside. Henry, are you down there? Henry? Hunger. So hungry. Let me out. Oh no, not again, Henry. 
Why don't you just let me sign us up for HelloFresh? You could be making dinner yourself every night and not letting it come to this. You turn into this monster every time you're hungry. Dinner hard. No time to cook. Must be science. Now, let me out. Henry, I've told you before, all the ingredients come pre-measured in handy labeled meal kits, so you know which ingredients go with which recipe. It's not hard at all. And you won't even have to spend all night in the kitchen, because recipes only take around 30 minutes. Oh, too expensive. I spend money on science. That's just ridiculous, Henry. With HelloFresh, it's easy to cook delicious balanced dinners for less than $10 a meal. And if you do want to splurge a little on one of our special nights, there's even a premium selection for a dinnertime upgrade, like lobster ravioli and shrimp with tomatoes and tarragon cream sauce. I don't always want to eat the same thing. Like new foods. Now, Henry, that's the best reason of all to order from HelloFresh. Not only do they have three meal plans to choose from, classic veggie and family, but they have a huge menu. So you'll get to taste and try new things. You can go right to HelloFresh.com slash menus anytime to see what's coming up. Too late. Hungry now. Let me out. You know I can't let you out when you're like this, Henry. But I have good news. I decided to sign us up already. Because they have a promotion where you get $30 off your first week if you use the promo code WICKEDLIBRARY30. Our first meal box came today. And I cooked dinner for us. Food? Food to eat? Yes, Henry. Here, I'll slip it under the door. It's pulled pork tacos with black bean salsa and cheddar cheese. You know I can't really cook, but this was so easy. It is good, isn't it? If you ask me, there's nothing more satisfying than cradling the tortilla in your hands and contemplating all the tasty toppings before leaning in for a big, juicy bite. Hey, that was really good. Can I come out now? Of course, Henry. Now that you're not hungry and angry anymore... If only our very hungry man had taken the time to visit HelloFresh at HelloFresh.com and entered our special promo code of WickedLibrary30, all one word, he would have gotten $30 off his first week of HelloFresh and avoided having to hide in the basement. <laughs> it's a good thing Gabriel did it for him, or who knows what might have happened. Even if your kitchen... And the thought of cooking has always been the stuff of nightmares for you. You can feel confident cooking HelloFresh with the simple recipes outlined on pictured step-by-step instruction cards. So easy, even a desiccated corpse living in a mystical haunted library can do it. <laughs> Ooh, tacos!
Stop hiding from a future of easy, tasty, home-cooked meals delivered conveniently right to your door. Visit HelloFresh at HelloFresh.com and enter the promo code WICKEDLIBRARY30, or one word, for $30 off your first week of HelloFresh. That's HelloFresh.com, promo code WICKEDLIBRARY30, for $30 off. So today my guest is Gwendolyn Keist, and we just listened to your fantastic story. And now we're going to talk a little bit about that and some of the other stuff that you have going on in your world. This story in particular, it, it has a, a certain feel to it, which I think I've noticed from reading your collection that you have started to really develop a, a unique and consistent voice throughout your pieces. Yeah. There's like this, I don't know if I want to call it a deep melancholy that runs through all the stories. <laughs> <laughs> deep melancholy. I love that. A deep yeah. melancholy that runs through my stories. That's amazing. <laughs> but in a very good way. I mean, in the best way possible that you can have a deep melancholy. There's like a, a bittersweetness mm. to, to the stories. And yeah. each one is kind of its own unique piece. And I don't notice a lot of similarity between story to story other than just kind of your voice that comes through. And it's it's very unique. And I I can tell from reading your collection why you were a 2017 Stoker Award finalist. Well, thank you. Thank you. See, we slipped that into the conversation just <laughs> so gracefully. Yeah. And then I have to talk about it to destroy all that grace. Um, but but that's a huge deal. So I definitely wanted to say congratulations. And I wanted to talk a little bit about what the experience was like and you know how it felt to be on the same list as you know uh, Joe Hill and... Um, I know you're a huge Twin Peaks fan. So, I mean, also in that same category, you had, you know, David Lynch and, and, and Frost. Well, not the same category. Well, the, the same ballot. The, the same, same ballot. ballot. Yes. That's, yes, yes. Let's clarify that. I know, the same that ballot. Was that was incredibly exciting being on the same ballot as, as David Lynch. And I loved it because then even the Twin Peaks official Twitter page, like, tweeted out about, about, the show being nominated and I was like oh my gosh like it just seemed like extra <laughs> bizarre and special for that to have happened because it was like I love I've grown up really liking so much of David Lynch's work and and it has resonated so much with me and then to be on the same ballot it, it still seems surreal to me but yeah it was a great ballot this year too it was yeah. really it was really an honor and so exciting and there were so many people on there whose work I admire so it was fun. It was fun and it was crazy. And I, I just keep saying surreal because that really is the best word for it. So very much so. And well, you know, it's very Lynchian, right? It's, it's that <laughs> surreal, twisted, slightly <laughs> off part of reality. So that's, it's kind of appropriate and cool, right? It is. It very, very much is. It very much is. So, yeah. So what was that I, like? What was the, what was the, uh, you, you were at, at StokerCon, right? Yes. Yes. My husband, Bill and I were there. It was in Providence. So we went, we were actually terrified because it was the, the first few days of March in New England. So we were convinced we were going to get snowed in. And I think it snowed <laughs> on either side, like a few days before. And then there was like a huge 
snowstorm after and even while we were there there was like this huge storm that came through and it was like this huge windstorm and rainstorm yeah. and we were sitting in the restaurant in the Biltmore and like looking out and like cars were actually starting to lift off the ground because of the wind it was it was intense it was that the weather was crazy wow. and then just be just being there and seeing so many people Meeting people I've known online, a lot of people I've interviewed for my blog, plenty of people that I've just admired their work for years, and it was great. And I was on several panels. I moderated a panel that that had Ramsey Campbell on it and Christopher Golden, and so that was amazing. I did a reading from my novella, Pretty Mary's All in a Row. It was crazy, and we were only there for two days, and it was just this whirlwind, and it was a very positive environment, very welcoming Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was it was really good. And then to get I love getting dressed up. So then we got to get dressed up, go eat. And I got to go lose an award. It was so much fun. Like, wow. seriously, it that's really the best was. part. It really was like it, I, I kept saying the entire time. And I feel like people probably think it's lip service after a while. But it was such an honor to be nominated. Truly, truly. And so I was I was so happy. I was having such a great time. So it was it was a really fun weekend. So how'd your reading go? It went well. It went yeah. very well. Yeah, I, I like reading live. I have a lot of fun with it. I, I read the title story of my collection at Necronomicon, also in Providence, actually in the exact same room as I did my reading at StokerCon. So that was kind of surreal. And so I did that. That was in August. And then I did the reading at StokerCon from my novella. And I'm actually doing a reading in less than three weeks in New York City. And wow, so look it's at been, you. Yeah, I know, right? Like, I sound so legit. Don't believe it, anyone. <laughs> Don't believe it. <laughs> you've worked really hard. You, you've done a lot of work. And I think that, you know, it, it takes a lot of work as, as a writer to find your voice and to, to know kind of what what is your voice because you write so much yes. stuff and eventually you get to the point where you're like okay this sounds like me um, exactly i love that you brought that up to start this conversation about this particular story because this is about three years ago that i wrote a certain kind of spark actually a little bit longer than than three years ago and this story was one of the first ones that i actually felt like i was finding my voice on that it was one of the earliest ones that i was like this, like you said, this sounds like me. This sounds like how I want to write. And mm. then, of course, it's figuring out what that even means. Because it's so it's a hard. very odd thing. It is. It's not just one thing. It's not just the setting or the characters or even the prose itself. It's all of these elements coming together. And I remember with this one, and it took me a number of drafts to get it right. But when it was finally done, I'm like, I feel like I just hit on something that's going to really matter to me in the future. And I'll be able to go back to the story and be like, this is one of the earliest ones that I felt that way about. So that that's very, I I love that you brought that up at the start of this, because that was something that as I was thinking about this story really kept coming up in in my mind, that it really was one of those earliest stories for that for me. Yeah. And it's, and it's really hard to define. It's really hard to explain. Like, Mm -hmm. like I said, it, it just, you realize that it sounds like you, and, and until that happens, you don't really know what that means. And, and that's, you know, people yeah. always talk about, you know, finding your voice and how you find your voice and when you know. And I think that's when you know is just like, this sounds like who I am. This is, this sounds unique. It doesn't sound mm-hmm. like I'm copying somebody else's style because we yes. all do that in the beginning. You know, we all yeah. try to emulate and even without knowing it and without being <laughs> conscious of yeah. it. Those things that are your influences just slip into your work. And, mm-hmm. you know, I know you're a, a huge Bradbury fan and I can, yes. I can feel Bradbury in your work, but not to the point where it feels like that's your only influence. You know, there's, there's definitely a lot more of you in your work. 
So talking about this story, what made this one that you wanted to tell? Because it's to stick with the story through as many drafts as you're talking about. I know that it it takes loving that story and falling in love with the, the characters and the setting and the story to do that. So what made that happen for you with this one? This was one of these places where I think one of the things I really loved about this story when I was writing it was this idea of the conflict between these two female characters and that there's love there, but that there's a lot of antagonism between them as well. And so that was something that I wanted to really play with and really see where I could take it. And I loved this idea of switching out that one, one was this, this sort of darkness that was left without the spark. And then that the other one had, because people always say, Oh, that person had just has something about them or je ne sais quoi. I'm like, what is that? Mm-hmm. It, it's as ephemeral as how we're talking about developing your voice as a writer. It can, it, it's not really something that's easy to define. And so I thought, what if it was something more tangible and what would happen if it was stolen or somebody just wanted part of it or something along those lines. And, and it just seemed very interesting to me. It's a very interesting piece because, you know, the, the, the sister that doesn't have the spark is kind of going along with it. What can I do? This is just kind of who I am. This is how it is. And she gets pushed to a point finally where she's like, you know what? Enough. I want yes. that. I'm going to take it. And then she has to deal with the repercussions of it, which is a really interesting way of telling the story. You know, it's, it's what I want the most, but once I get it, I have to deal with the guilt and um, realize that maybe it wasn't as great of a gift as I thought it was going to be. Exactly. And I didn't want her to just seem like a total brat because obviously her, her sister's a bit of a brat. Right. But I feel like even she develops as it goes along and as she realizes what her sister has been going through for all this time. And so I did want a sense of really being pushed to that point where you really feel like I have no choice but to do this terrible thing that she even knew was terrible as she's doing it. But then, like you said, to really have to live with those repercussions of what that's going to mean. Yeah, absolutely. And there's this really great high strangeness that runs through it. And, you know, it's, it's like reality twisted ever so slightly the other direction. And just that, you know, people don't even happen to notice that they're responding this way. And once the, the spark moves from the one to the other that it's just like, Oh yeah. I, didn't we, did we go to prom? Together? I thought it was you and I that were, were at prom together. They just totally, it's not the person, which is a really cool message too. It's not the physical person that they're, they're enamored with. It's what's inside of them, which is kind of a, a, a really deep message. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> it's what's yeah, deep I- inside that matters. I like this idea of, I play with identity a lot in my work and how uh, unreal identity can be and how it's not static and this idea that everyone just was like, yeah, of course, it's always been you. It's like, no, it used to be my sister and that nobody seemed, like you said, seems to notice that and how how creepy that is. For me, that's incredibly creepy because- 
I feel like I've always been that weird person that's never been quite as much in reality, maybe, as other people to begin with. So when things like that, when I write things like that, it really creeps me out because then it feels like a reality that can be tenuous at best anyways is even more tenuous. <laughs> so I think that that's, that's where I come from with the, with writing things like that because it just, it unnerves me. A lot of times that's the stuff that scares me the most is what unnerves me, what just gets under my skin, not really a jump scare even though in horror films, jump scares can be a lot of fun. Yeah. And no offense to them. But the things that stick with me when I read them or in a film or even a television show are things that just get under my skin that really unnerve me on these on these levels of everyday life. I always joke on social media about existential dread. It, it's to the point that I always think if I at the end of the year, I did one of those clouds of words I use so much, it would be existential dread would be on there. But it is true. Like it is scary living in a world where things are so tenuous now more than ever. I feel oh, yeah. so. So it's. It, that's what creeps me out and that's what I like to write about. Yeah, it's I was just going to say dread is 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 a definite part of that because it's it's that uncanny valley. It's just that things are ever so slightly off. It's almost real but not and it's just you I, that it's creepy. It's exactly what it is. There's like a, an underlying dread to the to the story and it's it's really cool, very well done. Um it's it's a it's a fun type of horror because you're left afterwards. And even now, I mean, the last time I listened to the story was probably a week and a half, two weeks ago when I was getting it ready for, you know, the final edit and everything. And even now, I mean, just look, thinking back to it, it's just, it's so creepy. Well, thank you. You're thank welcome. You. That, that's always what a horror writer wants it's to do. Right. So I appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, if you were writing like romance and I was like, that's creepy, that has a totally different connotation, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. So, with this piece, you mentioned a lot of successive drafts that you went through. What was your biggest struggle with this and and how did you overcome that? How did it resolve itself for you? I think initially I tried to tell too big of a story. I tried to fit in too many details, too many scenarios. It had a really long lead in. It, it had the scene early on with them on the sidewalk and then it had the prom scene, but I swear it feels like those came in at like page six or seven and it just it was really a place where again in developing my voice to realize just how quickly you need to get a story started you really just have to get it started and I'm like let's just go into this and really cut out all these early pages and see what where it's at and it worked I I feel like it works as it is now and I remember like I'll take these printed out drafts with me. And sometimes I'll be in the car in the passenger seat as, as my husband's driving. And I remember with this story in particular, I'm looking at it and I just take my, my, my little mechanical pencils. I carry them around everywhere. They fall out of my bag. It's insane. But I remember taking it and just drawing an X over an entire page. And he was like, Whoa, <laughs> like she's really <laughs> editing this one. And, and so I think that was a lot of it is it was, I was trying to tell too big of a story that really a lot of the extra elements just weren't working and they weren't that interesting. And so it was a place of realizing, okay, maybe these details are cool to me, but a reader's going to be bored. And so really winnowing it down to where it's at now, which I think is a much tighter story. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It, that's always the the toughest part. I think when you're writing a piece mm -hmm. is you're writing for yourself first. So you have all these things that you fall in love with because they're parts of you and, and you have to cut those away to really get to, the story itself. So it's always tough to, to cross out and draw big X's through things, I think. 
<laughs> it is, it is. It's less difficult for me now as I've been doing it longer because I've done it so many times that I try to tell myself, listen, this is what's for the best. I always <laughs> save over everything. So I always have it somewhere. Yeah. It's not gone forever. If I want to go back and every once in a while, there might be something I'm like, you know, I think the story was better with that, or I know a better place for it now. And then I'll go fish it out of a past draft and put it back into the story. So I always tell myself, it's fine. It's not, you're not like deleting it from the whole universe. Just see if it works better without it. But most of the time, I think if, if you have that instinct, most of the time it'll work better without it. Right. Absolutely. So for this story, what came first for you? Was it the characters? Was it the situation, the setting? Do you remember kind of what, what drew you into the story to begin with? It was a combination of the situation and the characters, because I feel like with this situation, you have to have these two sisters or at least two people that are very close. And so it was these these two sisters that I saw in this situation that one of them basically stole what wasn't hers in, in you know, before birth. And what would what would be the consequence of that? Mm -hmm. So I think that's where it started. So was there anything about the story that surprised you when you were going through the process of writing it or maybe in successive drafts when it, it came to fruition for you? Was there anything that stuck out to you like, oh, I didn't expect that to happen? <laughs> I don't know how early on I, I planned out the ending because it's still one of my favorite endings because it's usually when somebody, because we can say this, right? We can totally yeah, spoil absolutely. it because people should have listened to it. If, that, if that, not, shame the on end. them. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Usually when somebody comes back from the dead, it's not, I'm going to sit down at the kitchen table and have tea with you. Right. That's not what usually <laughs> happens. And the sense of everyone around, like the husband and the daughter are terrified and rightfully so. And, and the, the, the two sisters are like, this is fine. This is totally cool. And I love that. And I love ending <laughs> it right there because th in, in some ways, another story has just begun. Right. And um, possibly even a, a creepier story than maybe the one that was told. But to me, it's a much more, that would be a much more overt horror story. Whereas this one, I wanted it to be, like I said, that more unnerving kind of horror. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I wanted to end it where I did. And Maybe that was the most surprising part because I remember getting to that and I'm like, I just love this ending right here. And I feel like so many other writers would be like, no, don't end it there. But I'm like, I want to because it seems so bizarre to be like, yeah, she just came back from the dead. And it's fine. They're just going to sit down. And, <laughs> this is and the happy ending. Talk. It, exactly. And it is. It's this bizarre I feel like that ending almost more than anything else about it almost has this weird fairy tale feel. Yes. It almost like this is the rescuing of the princess, but the princess is dead. And so it, it sort of fits into to my body of work because I write a lot of fairy tales or I rework things in the sort of fairy tale feel. And yes. I felt also about this story in that way that it had that had those elements to it. So that was surprising and really fun, I think, for Absolutely. me as a writer anyways. Yeah, I mean, I think some of my favorite horror stories are the original fairy tales. And when I say original, yeah. I mean, you can't really tell what the original was. But let's say maybe not the disney versions of them. The the exactly. one where all the dark, creepy shit happens and, and it's yes. disturbing and uncomfortable. Um, I mean, <laughs> exactly. yeah, I mean... <laughs> read the little mermaid sometime folks and it's and, and horrible terrible. yeah the, it really is the little mermaid bothers me a lot because it's a really disturbing story and it has ugh. i always love retellings of the little mermaid because especially modern ones that yeah. are still horror i think it's so interesting because there's a ton of terrifying elements there yeah i mean you can you can dress it up and you can clean it up but there's you you can tell that there's the darkness is still there behind it that never really goes yeah. away you can't it's part yeah. of the 
integral parts of the story. Um, I mean, even if you look at like classic myths and, and, you know, Greek legends, uh, you know, you talk about Persephone and uh, uh, Hades. Hades. Hey, yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the part that, that always gets cut out of there is the rape in the beginning. That's just horrifying. Yeah. And it, it's a, those old myths were really scary and they, they are so connected to fairy tales. I, I yeah. agree. I feel like fairy tales and folklore and mythology, they're all part of that same tradition of, of oral storytelling. And so I think that, yeah, those are definitely fairy tales and definitely terrifying ones. Yeah. <laughs> Very scary. And I think maybe that's that's the fun part for you of of doing these live readings is it's it's kind of borrowing back that that yes. oral tradition and you know, it's it's different every time that you do it because your audience is different and what they get and what they give back to you is is different. Yes. Absolutely. And I, I very much feel that all stories should be read aloud at some point, whether it's when you're editing them or hopefully some point at a reading. I very much feel like that's how stories are supposed to be really presented. And I understand, like, I love the written word. Clearly, I'm a mm-hmm. writer. But to me, I I love I love hearing a story and I always read my stuff out loud. And it's so funny because I actually go into coffee shops and I write at coffee shops and everybody knows, like, that girl over there like talks to herself. But, if, but the funny thing is that if I go to the same coffee shops, I've actually seen people be like, oh, no, no, she's just reading or writing to herself. It's okay. And I'm like, it's like they're saying, oh, she's not crazy. And I want to be like, I am actually kind of crazy, but I am also reading my work aloud because I feel that that's how you can really get that feel of how how the the words flow. It, it, it really does. I mean, there's a lot of times when – you know, we get a, a lot of story submissions and, and some of the stories that, that I pass on are stories that are perfectly fine. They're great stories when you read them, but when you try to convert them to audio, they just become unwieldy and it, mm-hmm. it changes things. You know, it's like what, what looks good on the page sometimes doesn't sound good to the ear. Um, and, and I've never had that issue with your stories, which is why you show up on the show quite often. <laughs> I do. I do. I was just talking to Bill today about it. I'm like, what is this? My fifth time? I think yeah, so. I think it's my be. fifth story. I think it is. And so that is a huge thing for me. And again, like you said, there are still some really great stories out there that don't translate to audio. But for me, I, I hope that pretty much all my work could at least translate because I, like I said, it's really important to me yeah. to read things aloud. I really, I love, my parents read to me when I was younger. I still read aloud. I read to my cat sometimes. Talk Aww, about crazy. That's sweet. Like I read, I read like we have a little a book with these little like black cats and mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm like, I'm waiting until Halloween, but those cat, my cats are getting read to about those five black cats. <laughs> I'm so excited. That book's already sat on the end of the bookshelf. So I'm, I'm going to read this aloud to you guys. That's awesome. That's awesome. So we talked about your collection and, and I, and I thought I might kind of run through, I don't want to spoil any of the stories, but I want to encourage people to pick it up. So, um, I'll tell you a few of that, that stuck out to me, obviously the, all the, all the red apples have withered to gray. Um, I think if anybody knows their, their fairy tales in the folklore, they, they kind of know what that's based on. Um, yes. But it's it's a it's a wonderful way of retelling. It's a very unique way of retelling that fairy tale, and I don't think anybody's anybody could go into that story expecting to come to the end and it to be what it is. I mean, you you have the elements wow. that you you have the bones of of the original fairy tale in there, but you've rebuilt it in such a way that it's it's completely unique. And it's one of the things that I always love when an author can take uh, a fairy tale that's well known. And you, you could read it to someone who doesn't know the title or, or maybe hasn't heard it before. And they're like, 
what we, oh, is that what that is? Um, <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you, you. You're welcome. Yeah, I mean, Neil Gaiman did that with Snow Glass Apples, which it's a, such a fun thing to take, like I said, that original tale that everybody knows and kind of twist mm-hmm. it on its on its head and, and make it into something that's unique and, and a totally different perspective, but still staying true to the original in that way. The Man in the Ambry. Of course, we've done that on the show. Yes. Um, yes. And Find Me Mommy, which some people yes, may have know. heard. Maybe someday we'll do that or release it again. But it's it's one of those ones that we did an original form of. And because of the publishing of the collection and everything, we we didn't reshare that one. Yeah. Yeah. We decided to hold off. Yeah. Um, Audrey at Night. So so talking about yes. like the when someone comes back from the dead, that's uh, one we did on the show. <laughs> that's That's where the traditional horror story is. Um, the tower princess, another one that's just so weird, but so good. (laughs) Well, thank you. You're welcome. That's a very, that's a very polarizing one. A lot people either really loved that one or really hated that one. And it was interesting because when it first came out, it got some of the nastiest reviews of anything I've ever written. And yeah, people were really like, this is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. And I'm, I'm like, okay. And then what's been interesting is since the collections come out, a lot of people have talked about that one and said that it's one of their favorites. So that one's been interesting. The life of that one, and it, it was really hard to sell, too. Mm-hmm. I had sent it out to a number of places, and it ultimately got into Inner Zone, which is like one of one of the coolest, one of the best fantasy and, and science fiction magazines are one of the longest running i think it is the longest running in britain i think that that's correct and i just sent it there thinking there's no way they're going to take this <laughs> absolutely no way and i remember i almost didn't send it and sometimes i have to get myself like all like psyched up with anger over something i'm like you know what this is this is a typo free story that i've edited it's not going to hurt anybody to read this and then like a week later they're like we'd love to publish this i'm like well i'm glad i sent it yeah because i was at a place that i didn't think it was ever going to get published and then like i said i got some some scathing reviews out there, and then people end up, people ended up has, really had a second life in the collection. So I was very happy about that. So when when was that first published? Wow, when was that first published? Probably only a couple years ago. And when I really think about this, I think my first it hasn't even been four years since my first published short story came out. So it couldn't have been that long ago. I think it was wow. about two years ago. Yeah, it's been it's been a whirlwind sometimes when I think yeah. about it. Well, you know, there there has there has been a lot of change in in what audiences accept and what audiences are craving. Um, That's I, true. I, I think that storytelling has become more sophisticated in terms of mm. you know what what people the stories that are out there in terms of television and movies and and that there's mm-hmm. there's been kind of a revival of getting back to you know character driven stories and. Um, anti-heroes and, and things that are just not exactly what you're going to expect, not your cut and dry. And there is definitely a very high, there, there, this story is very strange. Um, it's, it's fantasy. I mean, in its roots, but there's like yes. this, there's the same thing that we talked, that existential dread, that deep yes. melancholy that runs through yes. the whole story. And it's, it's very much in my opinion, an analogy for, you know, being accepted and fitting in and, and, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, way we divide our 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 friends up and you know yes. kind of like when we go to school how these cliques develop and, and that sort of thing so it i thought it was a very powerful story and i think when i first talked to you i, I uh, about the collection and i was starting to read it i think i may have said um that the 10 things to know about the 10 questions was my favorite 
Yes. It's it's I think it's now my second favorite because <laughs> um the Lazarus Bride is uh, to me, I think that's my favorite piece in the whole in the whole collection, the, the the closing piece. Well, thank you. I love that you picked that one out too, because my editor Jess Landry, that was her favorite story in the collection, and that's why she was like, "I want to put that last." And then she even commented, "She's like, not enough people have have picked that one out there as their favorite, and it's my favorite." So I have to tell her that it was your favorite too. Yeah, that, that was a really hard story to write. There's a lot of, I mean, I think we put personal things into all of our work, but there was definitely some very personal elements of that, and there were parts of that story that that it sort of lived with me for a long time and then to mm. finally write it I remember it was it was great in a way because it was I I think it was the second to last story I wrote for the collection and I'd already told Jess I was going to get her over a collection for consideration at Journal Stone so I had a deadline and I feel like without the deadline I may have just been like nah I'll just I'll put that off and I think I would have kept waiting because it was sort of how it had been because I knew it was going to take a lot out of me to write it and so I was really glad to have that deadline and be kind of forced to finish that story it was that was a good thing because I'm I'm very glad with how it turned out yeah it's a beautiful piece and and we can't not talk about the title piece which is and her <laughs> smile one tether the universe there's uh, and I don't want to spoil it, but there's there's definitely a very David Lynch feel to this. There's there may be a little bit of Lovecraft in there as well. Um, wow, I wouldn't have thought of Lovecraft, but okay, I could see that. Yeah, there's again, there's a lot of there's a lot of dread in there, and yes. a lot of sort of this unknown, and especially the ending of the story. Yes, I could really see that being this this chaos. We'll say we won't spoil it. But no chaos. Let's say that. <laughs> so yeah, everybody should pick up the collection because it uh, it was it was what got you as a uh, Stoker Award finalist for 2017. And, yes. and aside from that, uh, it's it's a great collection. I was so happy whenever I had some time in between seasons of the Wicked Library that I could finally sit down and read it because I'm reading so many stories in submissions. Uh, a lot of times I don't get a chance to read things. So it was nice to it, yeah. just read that for fun and, and see that, you know, there were a few stories in there that we had done on the show before. Yes, 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 there were. There, there were three. I, I, that was interesting because when I was talking, like, okay, here's where everything's been published before. And I'm like, wow, they've done three stories. I'm like, <laughs> I give I give Dan the best. That's why. I That's give right. you the best. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Awesome. That's Hear that, audience? You get the best because of that. <laughs> So let's talk a little bit about writing. What what attracts you to writing horror and speculative fiction? What makes that the genre that that you feel most comfortable in? I think we already touched upon this when I keep talking about existential dread. I feel sometimes like I'm like a broken record with that because I always <laughs> talk about it. But I feel like horror is uniquely suited to deal with these ideas of of feeling displaced as a person with mm -hmm. identity issues and being able to really take I mean any genre could deal with those things obviously but to be able to unpack them in a way that captures how how profoundly upsetting how distressing it can be mm -hmm. I think that there's the horror is so built in to have the unnerving and the distressing and and the terrifying and I feel like that to me captures these experiences the best and is the most unvarnished that it's the most honest and i think that that's really where i come from with wanting to be a horror writer and also i've grown up with horror i mean my parents both love horror so it, it's been through my whole life mm -hmm. i've loved horror so but i think that's what keeps me coming back to it myself because you can grow up with something and not necessarily want to stick around right. it for the rest of your life but i think that that's what keeps me in the genre and it's funny because like i did write 
little bit of science fiction here and there early on. And, you know, I have written some more just conventional fantasy. But as I've developed my voice, I've realized I've always come back to these these works that have horror elements, weird elements, or darkly fantastic elements, which mm-hmm. all of those deal with with the sense of dread or things that unnerve you. So I think that that's that's where I'll be. I'm very very happy here. It's it's it, it was really great because for a while I was writing so much. I mean I remember one year I, I think I wrote like 50 stories in a year. I mean and, and like got them published like pretty much all of them and then was like show off. No. The thing though is, like, none of those are, are, am I, like, upset about, but there are definitely some that I could be like, I probably will never put those in a collection. Yeah. And I felt very much like it was just this point of figuring out what kind of writer I wanted to become. And it was really good because I was able to try out different things and be like, okay, that wasn't bad. I'm not ashamed I wrote that, but it's not where I feel most comfortable. And then Mm -hmm. when... I went through all of this to come back to the place where I, I always had loved. I loved horror the most and to be like, you know what? I, I think this is where I'm at my best. I, I think anyway. So that's that was comforting, I guess, in a way to be like, OK, this is good. This is good. This is where I'm going to be. Yeah. And I think that's a that's a, a great piece of advice for people that want to be writers or who are struggling to write or maybe be, are at the beginning of their writing career that you, you just yeah. keep writing until it feels right. And it's it's okay to try lots of different things until you find, and I, I think you have to try. Just like they say, you have to read outside of your genre. Yeah, you yeah. you have to write outside of your genre in order to kind of understand who you are. Because if you always write the same thing, you're just going to have a very, I don't know. You, I don't think you're ever going to find your voice if you just write only one thing, because it, a voice is composed of lots of different pieces. I agree. I completely agree. I think that, yeah, I think that you can't possibly be any kind of genre writer without all those different influences and all of that awareness. Right. So I'll ask you a question that I always find very interesting. What is a story or maybe something that you've listened to a movie, something that, that really you can look back to and you can say, this is where my, my love with the genre began. And this is this is where I started to understand what I'm scared of, because I think that's important if we want to write horror to know what scares us. I would agree. I, there's so many different things I could pick out, but this was one of the questions that was sent to me ahead of time, audience. <laughs> and so I had time to really think about this. Good. I, I believe one of the stories that really did it for me was Richard Matheson's Graveyard Shift. I think oh. it's also called, called The Faces. And it's it's only about four pages, four or five pages. It's epistolary. So it's mm-hmm. written in letters. Uh, I think that that's like part of my love of the epistolary format was this particular story. It's fun to try that too. Everybody should try yeah. to write an epistolary yes. story because it's yes. it's a lot of it's fun great. to just really get into that character's voice, reliable or unreliable. And it, just exactly. you, you get the story pieced together very slowly. There's gaps mm-hmm. in between. And mm-hmm. it makes it a lot of fun to kind of, it's almost like a, like a detective story to piece together what's really going on here. Yes, exactly. And it was this story about it. it this, this doesn't spoil it because this happens very, <laughs> very, very, very pretty much on the very first page in the first letter in the first paragraph, a woman is dead and they can't figure out what happened. And her son is just a mess. He's very young and they have no idea what's wrong with him. And as the story unfolds, you realize like it's, 
it was so terrifying because it subverted my expectations so much as to how the ending went. And again, it ends and it's not fully resolved. We just know what happened, but it's not resolved. And I remember thinking like, I didn't know a story could be like this. Yeah. And I, I didn't know it could end like this. I didn't know it could unfold like this. And just being at once terrified and really, really impressed. I mean, I was only probably about 10 years old, maybe, maybe 12. I, it's in that area that as you get older, you can't actually remember how old you were. You just <laughs> right. sort of guess. But I remember just thinking like, wow, that's really something. And, and it was so, so creepy. And again, I keep using this word, but so unnerving. It really got under my skin. Mm. And I would say that, that that's really that's really one that I, I can go back to and say that one. Definitely that one. Oh, and I should give a nod to Bradbury. Skeleton. Skeleton is such a creepy story. Yeah, I actually saw it in, the, in an episode of Ray Bradbury Theater. That's, oh, that yeah. was what the show was called. It's in actually the October Country, though, which I didn't even realize until a few years ago. And I was looking through the October Country again. I'm like, oh my gosh, there's a terrible story because it really creeped me out. The ending on that is just like, and the guy's a hypochondriac in it. And I've, I've had my bouts of being a hypochondriac. So it actually creeped me out the more as I got older. So it was, oh, that one's really scary, too. That, that was more of a gross out almost, though. Yeah. But, but that was a pretty scary one. I was pretty terrified of that. So. <laughs> So before we get into more of your stuff and where people can find it, I did want to talk a little bit about, we've had this, this long relationship with you writing for the other show, the lift. And, um, you know, I love the the way that you write for Victoria and I, I love the way that you write, uh, the episodes that you do. I don't know if you saw, we had a, a tweet that, that I, uh, rather enjoyed the other day where someone's like, damn it, you can't make me cry at work. <laughs> yes, I did see that. Yes, I think it was my last story for you guys, right? I yeah, moving day. Yes, moving day. Um, which it was one of the one of the storytellers for today. The storyteller for today's episode, uh, Jessica McAvoy, uh, was one of the the two voices in that story. It was mm -hmm. Nicole Goodnight and Jessica McAvoy, mm -hmm. and um, yeah, that's that's a very poignant. Your stories, I, I, I'm, I'll admit this really. Your stories, when I read them for the lift, I always get a little misty reading them. I, you know, it's, I get a little teary eyed, and I'm like, that's just sad. Um, <laughs> there was one I wrote that the Easter one I wrote was yes. much more. He was wicked. He, he was, was. Just wicked. You knew, you knew from the start he was going to get his. Like normally, I I like the idea of redemption. That's one of the things that really I love about the lift. One of many things. Obviously, Victoria is fantastic. Yeah. But I like the idea of these redemption arcs i think that that's very hopeful and meaningful but every once in a while it's fun to just write a wicked character and so then the easter episode that one was pretty good yeah absolutely yeah, that, was that was a lot and of did, fun i don't i don't think anybody cried at that one though i'm sure some people were like yeah you get yours mean <laughs> mean right. executive man that's right <laughs> yeah that was uh that was a that was a great story it was one of the you know, it's it's funny when we first started this, I kind of expected because a lot of the folks that were writing for the show, a lot of them are horror writers, that we would end up with a lot of dark endings. And it's funny because I, maybe it's the character, maybe it's the setting. I don't know. But there's there's a lot more redemption that occurs. And I think that's fine yes. because, yeah. you know, for anybody that doesn't know that the show, the title of The Lift is actually a play on. The, the, her purpose is to lift you up if you allow mm -hmm. her to. So mm -hmm. it's supposed to be you know, cautionary and redemption stories. It's, it's fun to have, you know, the ones in there that, uh, the person doesn't or refuses to learn their lesson. So yeah. she has to deal with them, which she doesn't want yes. to. Um, yeah. but yeah, I mean, there's, there was, there was no love for that guy and he, he certainly deserved what he got. He, he did. He very much earned it. <laughs> so when you write for that, is that, how is that different from writing 
something that you just sit down to write for yourself? It's very much thinking of it as being part of this world mm -hmm. and wanting to make sure that I honor that Victoria in particular. It very much feels like when I write for the lift that Victoria's right there sort of looking over my shoulder <laughs> and I, I can always hear her voice. I can totally imagine her voice very easily and mm -hmm. I I love writing her. Yeah. She's great. And so often it feels like she writes herself. And it's funny because I always read my stuff out loud. Like I said, I even have the Victoria voice that I do. So I'm sure I look absolutely delightfully <laughs> ridiculous at coffee shops when then I'm doing this little girl's British voice. Yeah. Well, all of a sudden out of nowhere at my computer. But it is it. In some ways, it's very nice to be able to settle into that character and know that that character is going to be coming up. So it's this kind of safety of saying, hey, you know, I got to create the early world in the first half of the story or the first quarter of the story. But then I know the world that I'm coming into for that for the for the rest of it. So there's it's nice. It's like it, it's like home cooked food. It's like coming home. It's the sense yeah. of of knowing and, and being familiar. But at the same time, the world is so rich and there's so many things that can be done within the paradigms of that world. So there's, there's safety. And yet at the same time, there's a lot of room for movement and Victoria is just delightful. She's yeah. just great. I, you know, it's funny you, you say that because I always feel the same way. And I think that, you know, in talking to some of the other writers that, that that's kind of been the common theme is that she talks to them and she, she tells you what she wants to say. And I find when I write her, if I, if I get her dialogue ever so slightly wrong, it's almost like she's correcting me. And I wouldn't say it that way. Yeah. I'd say it like this. Yeah, exactly. She yeah. has her, her own distinct voice. And, you know, one of the questions that I, I've gotten asked about it is, you know, like, how does she feel so real? And I think that truly the reason she feels because she is real um, <laughs> and she's whispering to all the writers, but I think that because we have had so many different writers write her, she has, she's very nuanced she has a lot yes. of, she gets a little piece from everybody. So absolutely. while she does have that kind of overriding personality, you see different facets of her from story to story. Um, and I think that's what works and that's what makes it fun. Very much so. Very much. So where can listeners find more of your work? I, I understand you have a few things out there. <laughs> a few, just a few. Just yeah. a few. <laughs> I would say just go to my website. I feel like that's like the good landing site for it. So GwendolynKeist.com. I also have a blog there. I interview lots of, of cool writers and editors, including you, you Mr. Foydick. I interviewed you. Wow, it was ago. a while ago. Yes, you did. It was a while ago. It does feel like a long time ago. It does. It's not even that long ago, but it feels like a long time ago. It feels like ago, years. <clears throat> it feels like years. It's not the years, yeah, it's so the mileage. <laughs> I'd agree with that. It does. That's like that is how it feels. But there's there's several years and lots mm -hmm. of mileage on the blog. Yes. And so there's a lot of stuff there. And then you can also find links to, to all my work, to my to my two books, and then all the anthologies and, and magazines I've been in. So. So, tell me about Pretty Mary's All in a Row. Yes, Pretty Mary's All in a Row is my novella that came out from Broken Eye Books in the end of November last year, and it is about the Marys of folklore. So it's about this oh, house full awesome. of Marys. So it's Bloody Mary and Mary Mac and Resurrection Mary and Mistress Mary Quite Contrary and Mary Lloyd. So it's all of these different Marys together, and it's sort of an origin story for them as they figure out who they are, and also facing off with an antagonist in the darkness who basically wants to steal their hereafter from them. That's awesome. <laughs> I, that was a really good delivery. I wish I could always do that, because people ask me sometimes, and I'll be like, 
it's about folklore. And I just <laughs> stop. But that, that delivery was pretty good. I, I should like record that and just play that the next time. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll send you a copy. Um, okay. <laughs> no, but that's that's great because you know, I have the book. I just need to actually pull it out and read it. So it's it's on my list. Maybe I've moved it up a couple because of, of your description just now. Well, there we go. It's working. It's, it, it, it's it already fantastic. has done its magic. It was a lot of fun researching it, too, because I love folklore. Obviously, mm-hmm. I talk about fairy tales, and I love folklore, and I love urban legends legends and how they they grow and they change and yet you can see this you know like the vanishing hitchhiker that has been through all these different elements and that's where resurrection mary comes from but it's just really a lot of fun and then realizing that so many of these characters so many of these characters are named mary and thinking let's just put them together and see what happens was really the initial idea and and I, I remember before I started writing it, I searched online literally for hours to make sure no one had ever done this before. And I never found anything that had put any of these characters together. And it seemed honestly like such an obvious idea that I remember saying to my husband, I'm like, I need to do this because otherwise somebody else is going to beat me to it because <laughs> right. this seems like just such a really fun idea. And so I'm like, I've got to got to do this one, got to put this one on priority. So that's sort of how it how it came about. Yeah, it's 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 funny that you say that because when you were talking about it, I was thinking, I can't believe nobody's ever done that before. That's that makes total sense. It's so it totally cool. makes sense. It seemed like such a natural group of characters to put yeah. together. But like I said, I I literally spent hours on Google. I would like put like Bloody Mary and Resurrection Mary together, and like one time I found them in like some dictionary of urban legend just because they were happened to be next to each Ah, other and like and like just that was literally the only thing i could find and i'm like okay then i'm going for this because there's also the fact that we always say there's only so many stories to tell anyways if you tell it originally enough there's no problem anyways and so i'm like you know but i always like to make sure there's nothing out there that's too similar to what i'm working on i'm like i can't find anything like that and nobody's brought anything up in any of the reviews so i'm like okay you know, the most they've said is like American gods and how American gods brought a lot of different mythological yes. figures yeah. together. And there's definitely been works that have done things like that. So I'm not I'm not suggesting I'm the first one to come up with that idea. It was just these particular <laughs> characters. It just it seemed like it was really fun and to to give them their due in this way and, and to just be able to develop their personalities because it you don't really know Bloody Mary very well. We all know of her, but we don't really know her. And it was really fun to give some of these characters like an inner life to know who they are. So that was a really good time. Well, you've now said her name three times, so enjoy your evening. <laughs> I, I have. I have said her name three times. It's not in a row. It has to be in a row. Oh, in front okay. Of a mirror. Though, though I am right count. next to a mirror. I'm actually right next to a mirror. So, hmm, hmm, hmm. Yeah, it might not be a great evening. <laughs> <laughs> Let me know you're okay tomorrow. I will. <laughs> so what are you working on right now? Is there anything you want to talk about that you're working on? Or I know last time we interviewed what we, what you were working on was a secret. And, and now of course you know what it is. <laughs> true. True. I'm actually finishing up the edits on my debut novel, the awesome. rust maidens. It should be out later this year. And it's about, it's about Cleveland. It's about body horror and teenage girls and, Basically, the concept is these girls are changing and they're turning into the rust and decay of the rust belt. Oh, and, wow. And trying to unravel the mystery of that. That's what the main character is is trying to do throughout the story. So very much going back to my roots, my Ohio roots. I'm an Ohio girl. I live in Pennsylvania now, but I'm an Ohio girl at heart. So it was interesting <laughs> to sort of go back there and, and research a lot because it takes place mostly in the year 1980. 
So I wanted to deal a lot with with when it was becoming the Rust Belt and when it was sort of earning that name and, mm-hmm. and exploring that. And I love historical fiction, and I particularly love historical fiction that's relatively recent. Yeah. There's something to me that's very interesting about telling a, about a period, like telling a story about a period of time that people can easily remember. There's a lot of people alive that can remember the year 1980. So I'm Definitely. not one of them. I was born in 84, but it is fun like to be able to say to my parents, does that sound right? And they'll be like, yes, that's that's fine. Or, or like they'll give me little nuances <laughs> of things that I'm like, oh, okay. So that's that was fun. That's a very fun thing to be able to do. Very cool. That's very cool. So what's the best way for people to get in touch with you if they want to say, you know, they loved your stories or, you know, follow you around, that kind of thing? I mean, not like literally, you know, maybe through through social media, not not in the creepy way. (laughs) Although social media can be pretty creepy, too. It can be, can't it? (laughs) It can. But I would say find me on Facebook. Find me on Twitter. Just look me up. I'm facebook.com slash Gwendolyn Keist and Twitter at Gwendolyn Keist. So I'm I'm around. I I respond to things unless you're being too creepy. Then I might be like, (laughs) hmm, I don't know about that. But I'm (laughs) but. My bar is pretty, I mean, I, it's pretty high. Like, I'm, my threshold, my tolerance for creepiness is pretty high. So, you know, don't push your luck, but I'm, I'm, I'm pretty friendly. I'm pretty friendly, I think. I Indeed. Think that's a fair thing to say. <laughs> Indeed. Well, hey, thanks for taking so much time to talk about your work and the story and everything else you got going on. Uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, and it's always great to have you on the show. And hopefully we'll continue to, uh, to see more of you on the show and on the lift and you know, on our secret lift project that I'm not ready to talk about yet. You know, all that fun stuff. Sounds great. Thank you so much for having me. You're very welcome. (laughs) Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.